Well, good morning, everyone. How are we? That was a little bit delayed, and I'm going to attribute it to the snow, okay? I get it. End of February, we're all like, okay, we're done with the gray weather. We're done with the snow. Last week, it's so good to be back with you. Um, last week, my family and I, we went to visit my sister down in Phoenix. We were planning on spending five nights in Phoenix. We ended up only spending four nights in Phoenix. Um, we spent three nights in Vegas. The reason, we flew Spirit Airlines, that's why. So, yes, yes. Uh, my kid said Spirit Airlines, where we suck the spirit out of you. That was the tagline. So, I did end up with $1,500 worth of Spirit vouchers. So, if anyone's interested in flying Spirit, I'm your guy, okay? 50 cents on the dollar. Um, Again, so good to be with you. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of James. We are in our series, James, A Faith That Works. You can open up to chapter 2, verse 14. So grateful for Brian for stepping up and stepping in and preaching God's word last week. Can we thank Brian for that? Also, can we celebrate Brian? Brian has a new role here at Arbor. He is now our family ministries director. And Brian is a leader of leaders. He leads with vision and passion, um, and he has some personal vested interest in the ministry. He's got one son, Cade, in the ministry. Audra is pregnant and has a kid on the way, and so I am so excited for where Arbor Kids is going. For those of you who don't know, when Brian came on staff here at Arbor Church, there was no student ministry. He built that ministry from the ground up, and so I am so excited. I believe in what Brian is going to do with that ministry. If you have kids in that ministry there, are some exciting days ahead at Arbor Kids, so we're really excited about that. Um, just make sure your kids don't wear sweatpants, um, or, unless, or else Brian will judge your kids, as we heard from last week. I'm just kidding. He's not going to do that. Um, for those of us who were with uh, the church last week, he taught through James 2, 1 through 13, and the importance of being a church that doesn't show partiality or judgment based on appearances. Uh, but, but James, God's word, is calling us to be the kind of people, a loving, generous people who are a Christ-centered community, welcoming others, following that most important of laws, the royal law, that we would be a people that love God and that we would be a people that love others uh, as we want to be loved. That's what we learned last week. And the passage that we're going into today is an extension of that. So again, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and look to James 2, verse 14. Our passage today, though, is like one of the more hotly debated passages in all of the New Testament. And honestly, while I think it's important for us to understand the nuances and the complexities, I do think that some pastors and some people in the academic world get this thing a little too complicated, and, and they get themselves tied up into knots as to what's going on here. So we're not going to make this super complicated. Simply put, what James is doing here and what he's going after here is the relationship between faith and works. That's what James is unpacking in this passage we're going to look at today. What's their relationship with one another? Does one require or demand the existence of the other in our lives? If I have faith, if you have faith specifically in Jesus Christ, then do I need to have works? Do I need to have, to have works? What's the connection between these two things, faith and works? Let's look at verse 14. James starts by writing this. He writes, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? 
Can this kind of faith save him? So now it's not entirely obvious from the jump as to what James' position might be here. James starts by asking two simple rhetorical questions, and the intended answer for both of these rhetorical questions is to be in the negative. And so for his first question here, he asks, what good is it if someone, any of us in this room, we claim to have faith, but we don't have works. The answer that James is expecting is it's no good. It's no good if you claim to have faith, but you don't have works. And then his second question is this, can this faith save him? And again, the answer is to be in the negative. And the answer would be no, it can't. And this is where this passage starts to heat up a little bit because as followers of Jesus in our kind of church, and we're part of what we would call the Protestant church, just in case you didn't know, that's what this kind of church is. It's a Protestant church. Um, We believe that we are saved by faith alone. That's kind of a big deal in our thing, kind of a central tenet that we are saved by faith grace, by, or through grace by faith alone. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says this, for by grace you are saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. The faith that we have is a gift from God. Now listen to this. It is not from works so that no one can boast. And so from the jump, we need to understand that we are not saved by our works. We believe that we are lost without the saving work of Jesus Christ in our lives by placing our faith in his perfect life lived in our place and his death and his resurrection. That is what brings us new life. No amount of work added on top of that. That's what we believe. And so James here In this passage, he cannot be arguing that we must add works to our faith in order to be saved. That goes against what the scriptures say. And so then, what is James saying in this passage? What is he getting at here? Well, remember the other week. Uh, A couple weeks ago, we were in a passage where James called us to be not just hearers of the word, but doers as well. Do you remember that? We talked about that a couple weeks ago. God wants us to be doers of the word and not just hearers. But listen, it's not that he wants us to be doers instead of being hearers. God wants both of those things. He wants us to hear God's word and then go out and act on it and then do it. It's not an either-or situation. It's a both-and sort of thing. That's what's going on here. James is saying it's not faith or works It's both and. It's not either or, but we have to understand, though, that James is warning us. This is a warning for all of us in this room today. Just as he warned us, don't just simply be a hearer, James is warning all of us right now, don't just say that you have faith. Don't just say that you have faith. Now listen, faith is very important. In fact, it's like really the most important thing. Faith is. But James is saying, let me warn you. If you say you have faith, and that faith is not evidenced in real, tangible ways in your life, then that faith is no good. That's what he's saying. That's the warning here. It's, it's like 
It's like being a bird that can't fly. That's what it's like. I've got an extended bird analogy coming up, okay? So just get ready for this, all right? <laughs> My kids ask me, what kind of animal would you like to be? What's your favorite animal? And oftentimes I say bird, not because I have like any particular affinity for birds, that I love birds. I just think it'd be cool to fly, you know? To, to, to be able to have that power. But there are many birds that can't fly. And I don't think there's anything else in, worse in the world to be than a bird that can't fly, right? That's like the worst thing in the world. I mean, you got the ostrich. It's like the biggest bird in the world in Africa, and it can, it can brag about being a big bird, but like it can't fly. You got the emu over in Australia, the second biggest bird in the world, still can't fly, right? Now, I think the most interesting one is this bird called the cormorant. Anyone ever heard of this bird before? The cormorant? Then now, throughout the world, there are many different kinds of cormorants that exist. For instance, there's this one kind of cormorant called the double-crested cormorant, okay? If you're gonna be any kind of cormorant, this is the kind of cormorant you want to be. You see those big wings? It can fly, all right? But there's another kind of cormorant on this uh, little remote area in the world called the Galapagos Islands, okay? And at some point, this uh, Galapagos Island cormorant made its way there to this remote little spot and thought, man, this is a good spot to camp out. Ain't no predators gonna get me. I'm loving my life. It was kind of like a nice little retirement village for these Galapagos Island cormorants. But over time, they were unable to fly. Look at their little wings. Do we have a picture? Look at those little wings. <laughs> Look at those tiny little wings right there, okay? Now, compare the two cormorants together. So check out this picture. If you could pick one, which would you want to be? You'd want to be the one on the right with the big wings that can fly, right? Now, here's the thing both of those birds can say. Both of them can say, I've got feathers. Both of them can say, I've got a beak. Both of them can say, I've got wings. I'm a bird. Both of them can say that, but, but someone might write a letter to these birds and write something like, what good is it, my bird brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have wings but cannot fly? Can those wings save him? No. In the face of adversity, in the face of hardship, in the face of a predator, that Galapagos Island cormorant is toast, right? His wings are useless, they can't save him. He has wings, but he cannot fly. His wings are basically this useless, powerless appendage. And this, James is saying, is what it's like to have faith without works. You can say you have faith, but if it's not evidenced in your life through works, then it's an anemic, powerless faith. And he goes on, and he gives us an example of what this powerless faith might look like in our lives. Look at verse 15. He writes, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, and, and they're, they're lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, eat well, but you do not give them what the body needs, what good is it? So also faith, if it does not have works, is dead, being by itself. And so in James' example here, he talks about someone who shows up in our community, who's part of our community. That's why he writes brother or sister. This is not some sort of random person on the street. This is a person that you gather together with on a Sunday morning. 
This is a person that you serve with on the weekends. This is a person who attends a group with you in the middle of the week. And James asks, what good is it if that person, that fellow follower of Jesus Christ who's in your faith family, shows up and they're poorly clothed, and by that he doesn't mean that they're wearing like fashion from 25 years ago. What he's talking about is is they're in rags. They're practically naked. What good is it if that person shows up in rags, starving, and and you simply say to them, tell them, go in peace, be warm, eat well. What good is that? It's insane. It's pointless. It's powerless. In this instance, it's not the thought that counts. James is like, if you see that person and all you do is write them a get well card or a sympathy card, it's pointless. We have plenty of other idioms to describe this. Talk is cheap, you're paying them lip service. And what James is really cutting at here, at the very beginning of his passage, the hard truth we have to reckon with is this reality right here, is that if your faith hasn't changed you, your faith hasn't saved you. That's like the gut punch that James is getting at here. If your faith hasn't changed you, your actions, your behaviors, the way you actually live your life, then your faith hasn't saved you. And we need to take this warning here seriously because there are many in this room that have fallen into this trap. There are members in our community who claim to have faith yet you fail to demonstrate it in your life. And according to James, he's asking, what good is that? Is that real living faith? If you say you have faith, but no one ever sees it, according to James, it's dead. It's it's useless. Now, you might be kind of squirming in your chair right now (laughs) and getting a little bit uncomfortable at this point. Some of you might already be building your case, your defense, thinking, I'm good. (laughs) I'm good, I come to church most Sundays. I serve once in a while. I'm part of a group. I, uh, I, I, I give to the food bank occasionally. And listen, all those things, if you're doing those things, amazing. That's so, like, keep doing it, that's awesome. James is not against those things. But in this moment, we need to be really wary. We need to guard against a misunderstanding of this passage because this is where it can get really dangerous because I think in response to a warning like this, some of us can be like, man, I've got to get my act together. I've got to start putting some works together so I can prove that I have faith. Or others of us are like, no, no, we start pointing to the things that we're doing in defense of the reality that, no, no, I'm good. This warning isn't for me. I have faith. Listen, James isn't saying, hey, show me your resume. That's not what James is saying here. And he's not saying if your resume is terrible, then build it up. That's not what he's getting at. Again, he's not talking about adding works to our faith. He's talking about living the kind of life that demands the presence and existence of faith in our lives. That's what James is getting at here. And again, this isn't about being the kind of person that like cognitively, mentally reads the facts of faith and, and sees the gospel and is like, yes, I do believe that, and then cognitively steps over and is like, which works can I do now? Because here's the problem with that way of going about approaching this kind of warning. 
When we aren't living the kind of lives that demand the existence of palpable, real, living faith in our lives, so often the works that we rationally choose for ourselves, they actually disguise the reality and deceive others and deceive ourselves of the reality that we actually have no faith whatsoever. We can actually use our works as, 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 as a disguise for the reality that, that there's nothing going on inside of us. And so James engages with this hypothetical opponent in verse 18. He writes this, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. James says, show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by my works. Verse 19, he writes, you believe, you say, you have faith that God is one, awesome, Great job, well and good. Even the demons believe that and tremble with fear. And so James is like engaged in this hypothetical argument with this person and and this person is uh, talking to James and is like, James, that's great, man. That's awesome that you have this works thing covered and that's kind of like your hobby horse right now, man, but I got the faith thing, okay? I've got the faith thing and, and everyone in the church is built different. We've all got our unique giftings and we're equipped in different ways. And so how about you just lighten up on this whole faith and works thing, okay? But James doesn't. He puts his foot on the gas pedal even more and he's like, fine, man, I'll concede your argument. You say you have faith, show it to me. Show me the faith, right? Cuba Gooding Jr. voice. That's what what (laughs) James is saying here in this moment. Show it to me. And the thought here is that an individual, any one of us, can claim that something is true about us, but for certain things, until that thing is applied or exercised in our real life, there's no knowing that that thing is really true about us. Like for instance, I can say that I'm an amazing dancer, and I am. I'm an awesome dancer, and I am not going to prove it right now, but until you see me dance, I might dance like Elaine from Seinfeld. You know what I mean? Like, I might say I'm a great cook, but until you've eaten my food and tasted what I've cooked, I might be on the receiving end of like a tirade, uh, profanity-laced tirade of Gordon Ramsay. Uh, and I might say that I'm generous and willing to give away my stuff and give away my money, but until I, I do that, I, I might just be a stingy Scrooge. You see, we can say that these thing, things are true about who we are as people, For so many of these things, it takes more than mere talk to prove that they're really true. And faith, listen, faith is one of those things. And on top of that, we might say, like, I I, I believe it, though. Like, in my mind, I've mentally ascended to this thought that, 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 that God is real and that Jesus died for my sins and he rose again. And James is like, that's great, but do you understand that even the demonic forces that are vehemently, adamantly opposed to the God of creation, they believe that, too, and they tremble. And yet they still work against God. It hasn't changed them. Again, if your faith hasn't changed you, then your faith hasn't saved you. That's, what, that's the warning that James is giving us here that we need to heed, that we need to take seriously. And now we're left with the, the question then, what does real living faith look like and how do we go about um, bringing that into our lives and seeing that be a reality in our day-to-day living? Well, James gives us a couple of, of examples of what this real living faith looks like. Look at verse 20. 
verse 20, he gives us the first example here. He even says, but would you like evidence, you empty fellow? James is kind of a harsh dude, you know? But would you like evidence, you empty fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? You see that his faith was working together with his works and his faith was perfected by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says, now Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15, six right there. And he was called, Abraham was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And so, so James gives us this first example. We have, we have Father Abraham. Father Abraham, he had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham. And I am one of them. And so are you. So, let's all praise. If you didn't grow up in the church in like the 80s or 90s, you're probably totally like lost right now, trust me, you were spared a lot of harm, okay? You're good, you're good, you're good. This example of Abraham, James gives it to us from the Old Testament. His story we find in the very beginning of the Bible, the very first book, he draws our attention to Abraham, who was an individual who had faith that was expressed in works. And for those unfamiliar with this story, Abraham and his wife Sarah, they were called from their homeland to travel across into this foreign country, and God promised to Abraham and Sarah that he would give them a son, and not just a son, but so many heirs that all of their heirs would outnumber the stars, even though Abraham and Sarah were like a thousand years old. And he promised them this, and they waited, and they waited, and they waited, and they waited, and finally, God delivered on his promise, pun intended. He delivered on his promise, and he he gave them a son named Isaac. He gave them a son named Isaac. But then in Genesis 22, God asks Abraham to do the unthinkable. He asks Abraham to sacrifice his one and only son. In Genesis 22:2, God said this, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him up there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I will indicate for you. And we can just be honest about this if we're new to church or if we're still wrestling with some things. Like, this is wild, right? Like this is crazy. Like what are the moral ethical implications of the God of the universe telling a man to kill his son? Listen, that's for a different sermon for a different day, okay? We're not going there. It's wild stuff, but what's even wilder, more wild, I'm not sure what the grammar is there, Abraham actually begins to go through with it. He, he wakes up early the next morning he wakes Isaac up, he gathers some wood, he saddles his donkey, and, and, and he gets ready to go up to this mountain to sacrifice his son Isaac and offer him up as a burnt offering. And in this story, what we read is just as Abraham was about to reach out and grab that knife to sacrifice his son, the angel of the Lord cries out and tells Abraham to stop. And in, in, in the story, in the, in the text, Abraham is praised for his act of faith here in this moment. That's why James uses him as an example in Genesis twenty-two twelve. The angel of the Lord says this, for now I know that you fear God because you did not withhold your only son from me. And so we need to get this though, that like 
when Abraham did this, he wasn't earning some sort of superior level of righteousness. He wasn't like leveling up and wasn't this like ultimate like faith dude in this moment. But in this moment, Abraham doing what he did, expressing his faith this way, proved to God and to everyone watching, now thousands of years later, that Abraham was the kind of guy who was all in. His faith showed up in his works. This moment in Abraham's life gave evidence without a doubt that he had real living faith. That's the first example. Then James gives us a second example. Look at verse 25. And similarly, was not Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she welcomed the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So now we have the second example. This woman, Rahab, she makes this appearance at the beginning of the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter two. And now Joshua was the new leader of Israel after Moses. He was going in with God's people to take over the promised land and they were conquering city after city and they're about to conquer this place called Jericho. But before the Israelites went in to conquer it, Joshua sent in two spies and these two spies visited Rahab and stayed with her. But word got out to the king of Jericho that these Israelite spies were with Rahab and the king of Jericho said, I want those spies. But instead of turning those spies over and covering herself and protecting herself, Rahab had heard. She had heard of the things that this God had done the way God delivered the Israelites from the hand of Egypt through the Red Sea, the way he had provided for them for 40 years. She had heard of his faithfulness. She had heard of his love for these people. She had heard of his power. And so by faith, what she did instead was she hid these spies and helped them escape. And so when the Israelites finally came upon Jericho and conquered it and destroyed it, what we see in this story is that God saved Rahab. God spared her life and not just her life because of her faith. He spared her entire family's life. And what's so interesting and cool about the story of Rahab is this isn't the only time we see Rahab mentioned. Rahab shows up actually twice in the New Testament. Well, three times if you, if you count, uh, include James. She shows up at the very beginning of Matthew in chapter one in the genealogy, that's that portion we usually skip with all the names, Right? But she shows up in the genealogy of Jesus, Matthew 1, 5. It says that Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king, all the way down to Jesus. Jesus has the blood of Rahab. Rahab was a a great, 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 great grandmother to Jesus. And not only that, we see that she shows up in Hebrews 11, too. In the hall of faith, as a model of faith, the writer of Hebrews writes, by faith, Rahab the prostitute escaped the destruction of the disobedient because she welcomed the spies in peace. She showed her faith through her works. So so now what are we supposed to take away from all of this? And specifically these two examples that James gives us here. The very beginning of the passage, we saw that that if your faith hasn't changed you, your faith hasn't saved you. But how do we know? How do we know, given all of this information in this passage, that we are the kind of people that have real, authentic, living faith coursing through our veins? How do we know this? How do we know, to use the title of our series, how do we know that we have a faith that works? How do we know that we're not just playing games, that we're not just pretending? 
I think what we see here in this passage and very specifically in these stories of Abraham and Rahab, and you see it in so many other stories throughout the scriptures is this, is that a faith that works is a faith that is put to work. That's what we see. A faith that actually works is a faith that is actually put to work in every situation in our lives. You see, we can say we have faith. We can, we can talk all day long about how much we love Jesus and how much faith we have, but if that faith is never tested, if your faith is never put to work, then it's useless. It's lifeless. That's what James is saying at the very end of this passage. He says it's dead. It's like a body without a spirit. It's a corpse. And again, James is not trying to argue that you have to add works to your faith to prove yourself. He's warning us and pleading with us as a people to be the kind of people who live lives of faith that demand that the power and presence of God show up in our lives for watching eyes to see. That's what God wants us to be. That's what James is calling us to here. It is a faith that is marked by works. Faith and works, listen, are these inseparable partners. And so faith, real, active, living faith, it is put to work. And so friends, this morning, the big question that we all must wrestle with is this. When's the last time you put your faith to work? When's the last time you stepped out in faith and put your faith to work? When's the last time you put your faith to work by having a Uh, an uncomfortable conversation with someone else talking about how Jesus is the hope of your life and how he's changed your life. When's the last time you had that kind of conversation? That kind of conversation demands some courage. It demands some boldness. And you have no idea going into a conversation like that whether you're gonna sound eloquent or like a total moron. You have no idea if you're gonna be able to answer all their questions. You have no idea if it's gonna totally make the relationship awkward and change the dynamics forever. But when's the last time that you stepped out of that comfort zone and and shared with someone else your love for Jesus and how he's changed your life if we believe that Jesus is who he says he is and he can do what he says he can do? And, and, And if we say that he has done amazing things in our lives, then who are we to keep that from other people? When's the last time you put your faith to work by by talking about Jesus with someone else? Ready to get a little more uncomfortable? Everyone's like, no, we're good. Let's shut it down, right? Listen, when's the last time you put your faith to work by writing a check or giving money to someone or something where it demanded faith in God? When's the last time you did that? When's the last time you stepped out and were generous that way? Listen, I know I've lived this way. I know many others have. There are many in this room. And we argue and we say, well, listen, I'll be generous when I get a better paying job. Or I'll be generous when when that debt is paid down. Or I'll be generous when my savings account, my emergency fund is a little bit bigger. Listen, I get that. I understand that. But understand this. No matter what stage of life you're at, generosity always requires faith. It always requires faith in a God who can provide and care for you and love you. And so when's the last time you put your faith to work through generosity? When's the last time you put your faith to work in in your simple schedule? 
in your day-to-day life with your time? When's the last time you served someone when you felt like you didn't even have the time to do it? And yes, there are so many things on the schedule and so many deadlines and you have that precious free time and you're like, man, I just really wanted to watch that Netflix show. But instead, by faith, you chose to give up that time and serve someone else and trusted God that he would use the way you used that time and multiply it beyond anything you could think or imagine and refresh your spirit and soul far more than any Netflix show could do. When's the last time you put your faith to work? And again, those are simple, everyday examples. God's not asking any of us to sacrifice our one and only son. Here we have these incredible examples of Abraham and Rahab, and we see it throughout the scriptures, putting their lives on the line, showing their faith through their works. When's the last time you put your faith to work? Because listen, listen, Until we put our faith to work, we'll never know that we have a faith that actually really works. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for your word. We thank you that even sometimes when your word is tough to receive, God, that you give grace. Lord, we thank you that you save us by grace through faith alone. We thank you that it's not by adding our own works. God, we are imperfect, broken people that need your perfect work on our behalf. And we thank you for that. But Lord, you don't ask us to just walk into the door and just stay there, God. You ask us to continue on in this life on a journey of faith that shows up in our everyday lives. And so God, right now, I pray for each and every person in this room, Lord, as you convict us and as you comfort us, God, that you would lead us into places of faith. God, help us to ask ourselves and answer the questions, God, what, what, do, what, do I, what am I trying to control in my life? Or what, have I, what am I afraid of in my life, God? And would you invite us to step into those places where we seek control? Would you invite us to step into those places where we grow afraid? And, and would you give us that gift of faith again? Would you give us that gift of faith so that when we step out in faith, we would see you work in ways that we haven't seen in a long time? God, I pray for our church. Lord, I pray, that, I pray that we would be that kind of people, that we would be a people of faith marked by works, that we would not just be comfortable with the status quo, but God, that you would invite us into something deeper. Invite us out onto the water like you invited Peter and, and help us to see that you can do anything, God. You are powerful. You provide, God. And so we trust you. We trust you. We believe, Lord. Would you help our unbelief? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.